news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. All right, let's dive into our first query letter. Dear Ms. Murray, Ms. Waters, and Ms. Lira, the roof above is the story of a young woman's journey to find love, independence, and belonging, though not necessarily in that order. It's women's fiction, 100,000 words, single POV, and set during the early years of the War on Terror, 2001 to 2006. Kelly McGowan, from a dysfunctional family in New Hampshire, realizes her relationship with her fiance Matt has changed after something happened between his West Point graduation and their arrival at his first army assignment in Georgia. When Matt returns from a deployment, he finally reveals a secret he's hidden from her. Kelly, devastated, leaves him. The only place she has to go is her aunt's house on Florida's panhandle, where she's walloped with another whammy, a catastrophic hurricane decimating the town. Kelly goes on a quest to build her own foundation for the future, regaining her independence and reopening the door to love to find the kind of contentment that only comes with being where you truly belong. 
The roof above parallels W.E.B. Griffin's The Lieutenants, but from the spouse's point of view in today's army of back-to-back deployments. Siobhan Fallon's You Know When the Men Are Gone and Laura Trentham's The Military Wife tell similar stories in different genres, literary fiction and romance respectively. An army veteran and retired army spouse, I'm also the mother of two active duty army officers who've been deployed five times in the past eight years and who have five children under the age of six. I admire and am humbled by the strength of these families who've inspired me to tell the story. I published a memoir about my experiences in the second class of women at West Point, Tough as Nails, One Woman's Journey Through West Point. I've written technical proposals, numerous articles for local publications, and a humor column for a community magazine. I live full-time in Mexico Beach, Florida, a tiny town that was decimated by a Category 5 hurricane in 2018. Thank you for your time, consideration, and feedback. Gail. Cece, would you like to dive into your take on the query letter? Sure. I really enjoyed the query letter. I thought it was very well written. I would if I had to give this person notes, suggest condensing paragraphs two and three. I'm wondering whether we need paragraph two only because like you typically, I love, I love hearing that, you know, something has changed between his West Point graduation and their arrival at his first army assignment. Like something has changed intrigues me. It's, it's a good way to pique my curiosity, but given that she goes through the plot points in the other paragraph, I don't know if we, if we need that, or maybe we could condense it into one sentence, but that would be my only note. It's a very well-written query letter. Wonderful. Carly, what did you think? I thought this was really interesting women's fiction novel. I mean, I think that we have clearly something going on that has another layer to it with women's fiction. You know, it's obviously about the women's journey, but I think there's a nice kind of like the army hook is is different and unique to this one. So just kind of starting at the top, we have, you know, a young woman's journey to find love, independence and belonging, though not necessarily in that order. It's women's fiction, 100,000 words. So I was kind of thinking... Like, I don't know if we need the journey to love, independence, belonging, though not necessarily in that order, because to me, women's fiction inherently covers a lot of those things. Like that's kind of built into the women's fiction category or, or genre, if you will. So I thought, you know, we could have just, you know, skip the the words and just roof above is the story or is women's fiction. 100,000 words, uh, single POV. And I thought the, yeah, the war on terror was great. I actually kind of liked that there was the specifics, you know, 2001 to 2006. Um, it's kind of hard to believe that that's considered like a historical time period now, but it obviously is and, and needs its own reference point. 100,000 words is a little bit on the long side. So if there are ways to kind of cut this down to 90, that would be a much more attractive word count for many reasons, keeping the reader entertained, you know, translation, things like that. Like they, you know, that, that word count is, it's pretty, it's pretty high for this category, I would say, especially because we're not doing any world building because it's contemporary. In the next section, I really wanted to know what the change was and what the secret was. You know, I, I understand why this person didn't want to tell us that in the sense of leaving it up to us to you know request the material, get the material, and then figure it out for ourselves. But for me, at the point that I'm looking at the query, requesting it, and then reading your manuscript is sometimes days, weeks, or months apart. So the query's job is to hook us and the the query's job is to get us to request more. And I felt like that left a little bit personally to be discovered, but I understand why this person did it. I would just say for my taste, I would prefer that to know what's going on because for me, it, it builds up the whole, you know, the whole, the stakes of the whole 
book, you know, in order for us to fall for her as a character, we need to know what the husband did. Because for women's fiction, you know, again, we, we have to not necessarily have to be a likable character. We have to understand, you know, where where this entry point into, into meeting this character is. So I just had a lot of questions about like, what are the stakes for her story? You know, what are the stakes for her finding her footing again? Are the stakes just, you know, getting her life back on track? You know, there was just so much that I didn't know just left uh, a lot to be discovered for me. And I, I, yeah, I just thought we could have just gone one layer deeper here for the sake of, of hooking the agent. Uh, overall, I really like the title. I think The Roof Above is a great title. I really liked that. And then I, for the author bio paragraph, I would have wanted to know where you published the memoir. Yeah, I just didn't know if it was self-published or traditionally published and, and all of that is kind of a track record that means something. So it seems very interesting. I just wanted a little bit more to hook an agent. Wonderful. Cece, what did you think of those opening pages? For the listener, we follow the protagonist and two other women as they are preparing to evacuate and actually evacuating because a hurricane is coming. I'll share a little bit about what was working for me. So on the second page, there's there's a mention where um, the protagonist is referring to the character of Amy, right? Like Amy says, oh, me too. I can't tell you how much I needed to sit on the beach and catch up. And then the protagonist remarks that her voice, her is Amy. Her voice seemed lighter, less tired, more content than it had nine months since that dark day the chaplain knocked on her front door. So that's intriguing, right? Like weaving in these sorts of clues and and, and mentions of what happened, like that dark day, that intrigues me. And there's quite a few moments where the author does that, and that's working really well. It made me want to know what had happened, and that's important. As a small note, I would say there's a few moments where the dialogue isn't in quotations. It's usually when Aunt Patty is talking to the meteorologist on TV. And I would just say, include quotation marks. I think it it helps, even though it's not proper dialogue in the sense that she's not actually talking to somebody who could talk back. Um, it just helps with readability. This happens a few times. And as a big note, and this would be like the meaningful note that I would share with, with this writer, what is going on in these pages? Like I said, they're evacuating because a hurricane is coming. It might seem like that's a good place to start a story since a hurricane is undeniably a major occurrence. But right now for me, it's not working because these women have it all together, right? Like they have a great handle on the situation. They're doing a good job of evacuating and I'm happy for them because it means they're safe. But in terms of fiction, it doesn't quite build to an ideal setup. I would want the setup to be full of tension and full of imbalance and full of conflict. Like I said, I was curious about what had happened in their lives, but I wasn't curious about what was going to happen. And that curiosity of what is still to come is essential in the first pages because that's what keeps us turning the pages. So yeah, I I felt that that could be woven into the story a little bit more. The result of this lack of tension is two things. One, it's reading as detached, almost like the protagonist isn't quite caring about what's happening because again there's no anticipation and two so at the end we find out that the town of seabury has been decimated like there's no seabury anymore a person says it's gone the town and what i would say to that is that i i don't mean this to sound insensitive but i don't care that seabury is gone because i didn't get to see seabury so perhaps it would make sense for us to see a little bit of seabury before or for the importance of the town to be woven into a way that would make me care about the loss. It's always tricky because you always want to start with momentum and you want to start with action, but you also want to set up enough backstory that people understand the meaning of something like a town dying. But yeah, it's it's definitely a tricky, challenging thing, but that's what I think needs to happen here. 
Great. Carly? That was great, Cece. I have to add a few things. I felt like the query letter seemed to have a huge emphasis on the army element and the war. And so I was going into these pages thinking we were going to get plunked there, not into the hurricane scene. So when they were talking about, you know, in the, the opening paragraph says, we didn't dare change the channel. For the past 24 hours, we'd watch swooping arrows, reds and greens and yellows shifting across the radar map. Every track, a possibility, every possibility, a disaster zone. I thought we were in a war zone. I didn't know that we were in Florida. So I just kind of started off confused personally. And then the meteorologist, like I thought that was a joke. Like I was... Again, this could just be my take and my read. I was out to lunch personally on where we were in terms of the setting. So I, it took me a long time to wrap my head. Or I had to read this three times to like, where are we? Where are, you know, where are we placing me as the reader? So really simple things like, you know, the timestamp is October, 2005. Even if you just said dash Florida or something like, or dash Seabury, like just something to just ground me in place. I really could have used that. So after that, I was very confused on the characters. So I I just came to this one super confused. I didn't know who Amy was. At first, I thought that the speaker was Amy at one point because there's the, the first person, I, I believe. So nobody ever addresses the speaker. And so at, so at one point, I thought Amy was the, the narrator. So again, I, again, just personally confused on this one. But again, this could just be one agent, one take, one read. Um, so just take that with a grain of salt. I would have liked to know, you know, yeah, exactly what the setup was. Like, like Cece said, you know, what, what's going on here that is unique about this situation. I also thought I wanted to know where they were packing for because they were so organized it seemed like we got we packed the car the night before like we're ready to go in the morning and then it kind of just they seemed like they didn't know where they were going and obviously if it's because the storm is changing and they might have to change their path and direction of where they want to go also totally fine but yeah just kind of some layers of tension kind of needed to build there for me to really feel like I was connecting with that I just wanted to highlight a paragraph I really, really liked. I thought the wording was really beautiful here. This Aunt Patty's house, like many houses close to the beach in Seabury, was built on stilts. I put the box in the backseat of my car and stood looking under the house, remembering hiding there when I was a kid in the dark of night, listening to my aunt and father talk above me on the deck. In hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done that. Overhearing some of those conversations may have messed me up for life. Too late now. That was just a really great paragraph. I really liked that one. I, I highlighted that one because I thought it was great. Other than that, you know, there were there were some details where I feel like we could have even just changed the the order of this opening section because later on we find out, you know, what they were packing in the car, you know, why the aunt, you know, sold the studio and and all of this sort of stuff. So I just think we gotta fix the order of like how we're meeting the characters, being really clear about everyone's relation to each other, figure out the tension going on with the storm. Like all of these puzzle pieces are hovering to me kind of in orbit of each other. I just would have really liked to just get a really clear sense of. Great. Yeah. And often the case is it's all there. It's like you say, Carly, it's puzzle pieces. It's just figuring out where to slot them in what order to place them. So it's, you know, these kinds of things are not even always huge rewrites. It's just really realigning something. That's all. Great. So Carly, let's move on to the second query letter. Will you read that for us? Dear Ms. Waters and Ms. Lyra, I'm pleased to query you with title A, 77,000 words, a book club ready literary thriller that will appeal to fans of Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies and of Robin Harding's The Party. 
Set in a Tony tight-knit Atlanta neighborhood known for well-funded schools and hyper-involved parents, Title A is the story of secrets kept between parents and children and husbands and wives and the ultimate price of loyalty. Everyone who's anyone knows Lori, a former corporate lawyer whose career took a backseat to her husband's. Her resume now lists things she neither expected nor desired. Stay-at-home mom, PTA maven, and social hub of her community. Thankfully, Lori has her best friend Eden to keep her sane. They met as newcomers to the neighborhood and leaned on each other as they navigated the unspoken rules of playground politics and competitive motherhood. Over a decade later, they become the life force of the community and of each other. Eden draws Lori out of her shell and reminds her that there is life beyond her to-do list. Lori reigns in Eden's fiery personality and defends her when Eden's irreverent streak causes trouble. Lori's life charts a predictable course until the day her teenage son and golden child is accused of rape. In a nightmarish twist, the accuser is Eden's teenage daughter. After the rape accusation, the neighborhood chooses sides. Lori is torn between clearing her family's name or salvaging her one true friendship. As Lori struggles to reconcile the truth about her son, Eden must decide whether to confront her own long-buried secret in order to keep history from repeating itself with her daughter. The two friends are about to find out just how far they'll go to protect their families and at what cost. About me, after growing up on a small town dairy farm, I spent 15 years soaking up the neon lights of New York City. I now live in Atlanta, where I write essays on various topics concerning motherhood for outlets like Huffington Post, Scary Mommy, and The Every Mom. This work inspired me to write a novel that addresses the ultimate parenting question, how far we'll go to protect our children. Title A is my debut novel. I chose to submit this novel for your consideration because I see you're looking for smart book club fiction with emotional well-paced narratives, which my book has. Also, in a bit of a fangirl moment, I've loved listening to both of your interviews and your new Books with Hook segment on Bianca's podcast, and I rarely stalk both of you on social media for your great insights on the publishing industry. Thank you for taking the time to consider representing my work. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, author. Wonderful. So, Carly, would you like to immediately dive into your insights on that? Absolutely. This is, you know my bread and butter in terms of what I what I'm interested in. So, you know, you had me with so much going on here. I did want to mention something about comp titles. I feel like we talk about comp titles every week, but we could endlessly, endlessly talk about comp titles. I feel like Leah Moriarty's Big Little Lies is a tough comp. You know, it's it's kind of a brand name now. It's bigger than the book. It's a TV show. It becomes a, you know, a signpost for so much more than the book itself. And when a debut author is using a comp, it's best if it is a book comp in a way that's not a brand. I just felt like it's not actually telling us enough other than, yeah, this is a brand, big brand name book. Tons of people comp this, you know, it's not unique. So, you know, I, I just felt like we probably could have found a better comp. You know, one that stood out to two that stood out to me that I wanted to mention that might be great comps are uh, Zoe Whittle's Best Kind of People and my clients, Tracy and Wendy. They wrote a book called Girls with Bright Futures. They were actually guests on Bianca's podcast. They're wonderful. And they also have a book in this space. So I just think there are other options other than Big Little Lies. I feel safe almost as a comp, but also simultaneously not telling us very much. So, so that's my two cents on that. Keep it if you want to, totally fine. That's just kind of what goes through my head when, when I see a comp like that. I also wanted to comment on the next paragraph, which was... Feeling a bit synopsis to me, the author used a kind of traditional synopsis tactic where they capitalize authors or the characters' names in the query letter, which is more of a synopsis thing. So I just, I would just say don't capitalize characters' names in a query letter. I also felt like the first paragraph, like the first body paragraph here, you know, didn't really have any drama in it. It was really setting up, you know, the characters, the relationships to each other, you know, a mom 
you know, not pursuing her, you know, her dreams and kind of stuck in a, a PTA role. To me, this is very background surface. We really need a hook. And especially if you're using a comp like Big Little Lies, what is the hook, right? Like right, right away, we want to know, does this fit neatly into that Big Little Lies world? If so, there's a lot of books out there like this. So what is the hook that is equal to Big Little Lies, right? Because you don't want to say, oh, my book is under the Big Little Lies umbrella. You want to say my book is as good as Big Little Lies. So where's this giant hook? And then we find it in the next paragraph, right? It's this, that the accusation of rape, um, you know, kind of dismantling the friendship in this community. So now we're getting somewhere, right? To me, this is much more meaty, very dramatic. And so the rest of the query letter really flows from there. So I would just rethink that opening, that second paragraph, which was the entry level to the, to the plot. Because I understand in a multi-POV novel why authors feel like they have to do this, right? They have to set up the two voices. But I always say, you know, when we have a multi-POV or dual POV book, the query letter has to bring us to bring the story together, right? Like what is what is the purpose of this book as a whole, not necessarily telling us two plot lines. So ultimately this is a very interesting book and I and I'm being, you know heavy in my critique because I think it's really great. And, and I think it has the potential to go really far. So uh, most of my notes are great, 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 great in the margins. So well done. Great. Thanks, Carly. Cece, what was your take on it? Yeah, I was nodding along as, as Carly spoke, because for me, the writer could actually remove the second paragraph altogether and replace it with one sentence that establishes that they've been friends for a decade. And that I guess you could keep the navigated the unspoken rules of playground politics and competitive motherhood, because that's a good line. But really, it could be one line. Uh, a whole paragraph can be condensed into one line. Because like Carly said, the hook is what matters. And the hook is there. It's it's clearly present. And I'm, it makes me curious to know. I actually remember when I was reading this for the first time, I was like, okay, so I love that the author knows what drew Lori to Eden and vice versa. I love that the author knows that the corporate lawyer background took a back seat and that affected Lori's personality. This is interesting. I, I These are things you should know about your, your main characters, but you don't need to put them in the query letter. So what I would tell the writer is great job knowing all these things. It, it shows that you've done a character study and that's essential in writing good fiction. But again, keep it out of the query letter. And then other than that, it's like, great. It's a, It would absolutely, like if I got this, I would absolutely be requesting pages because it's it's a great hook and it makes me curious and I want to know what happened. Okay, Carly, what did you think of the actual pages? So right away, we jump into Lori's point of view. Uh, my first note was that, you know, we only have Lori's point of view. So, you know, I, I made a note just to mention how important it is when you're writing a dual POV or multi-POV novel to make sure the voices are extremely distinct. So we didn't actually get a chance to read Eden because this is, you know, just a short sample. So just, you know, emphasis to everybody out there, how important it is to make sure these are very distinct voices. I'm a, I was a little bit nervous because these are two PTA moms of a certain community. I just really wanted to emphasize how important it is to make sure every character has a very distinct voice. The next thing I wanted to mention was swearing. You know, I'm, I think we talked about this before. I'm all for swearing. I think it's fine. I think it's a normal human, you know, reaction to to things. I did want to note that some readers will be put off by swearing. So just, you know, take that with a grain of salt. I leave that with you, the author, to make that decision. But, you know, there was a number of shits and fucks. So, you know, just take that with a grain of salt. Um, that that might not be for everybody. That And that's your decision to make as the author. Some of my notes in here were just... 
I really wanted to get a little bit more into Lori's head in terms of how she felt about being put in the situation. So the situation she's in is there's some sort of fundraising event and there's, they hired an Elvis impersonator and the Elvis impersonator's drunk. And so the organizers, the PTA moms are trying to rally to figure out how to fix this scenario. There was a lot of Lori being exasperated and groaning and putting her head in, you know, her head in her hands and things like that. But I really just wanted to know, like, what is the true emotion? Of, like, how does she feel about her fundraiser being derailed? How does she feel about the fellow PTA mom that blew it by hiring this dud of a impersonator? You know, I just didn't really get that actual sense of how important is this event to her? Is it more that she just wants to be the the superhero to fix the situation? Is it more just like, I can't believe I'm a PTA mom fixing a Elvis impersonator situation. Like, I just didn't understand this character. <laughs> and is she a fixer? Is she a wallflower? Like, I I couldn't get enough of a sense of that. I liked the scene we were in. I just really wanted to know, like, what was happening here. Other than that, I think there was a lot of characters introduced in, in this opening scene. So one of my notes was just trying to figure out how everybody is in relation to each other. You know, we have the wives and the husbands, the PTA mom and the Elvis. Like that's just a lot of characters to meet. So instead of maybe having this Caroline character who is the one that watches the um, the hiring of the Elvis, like why isn't it the two best friends? Why isn't it Eden and Lori? You know, I just didn't understand why we needed a Caroline character to, to make this more complicated. So, you know, I think just trying to figure out, you know, a, a deeper layer of emotionality of this um, would have hooked me a little bit more, but ultimately it's pretty interesting on scene. Great. Thanks, Carly. Cece, what did you think of those opening pages? I really enjoyed the opening pages. I think it's an interesting scene. I think it always makes sense to choose a scene that would make sense in your character's life. Um, and that's also interesting and intriguing and sets us up for more drama. And I think the the writer has done that here. I 100% agree with Carly's note about the need for more emotionality. You know, as an example, there's a part where Ed tells tells his wife, Lori, um, that's my girl, always the smartest one in the room. And then Eden actually agrees and says that was fucking amazing. Um, so what I would say to that is this, this is an example of how we need to see the emotions within the emotions. How does this make Lori feel? If her husband just turned to her and said, always the smartest one in the room. And I, you know, he, he actually pats her on the butt as, as he says this, does this make her feel irritated because she's being patronized? Or does she feel like, is she glowing with pride because her husband adores her? Knowing that matters and makes a huge difference. How she feels towards that one line, and this is just an example, there are other lines that I could be referencing, but knowing how she feels towards that one line tells me everything I need to know about the character. Tells me how happy she is in her life, tells me how happy she is in her marriage, tells me about their dynamics. And since I actually read a line that has swearing, I will also piggyback on Carly's comment and say, I learned this the hard way. A lot of readers do not enjoy swearing and they will write really mean reviews. This is not a joke, by the way, like please, please check out a book that has a lot of swearing and they will write incredibly mean reviews about how the swearing put them off. And to be fair, listen, I subscribe to HBO. I swear I'm good with it. I feel like everyone should be comfortable with swearing, but some people aren't. And that is their right. And keeping this in your story or not is also your right as the as the author. My quick and dirty tip is to not keep it, not have it in the first pages because someone's going to download this on their Kindle or their iPad or whatever, and you don't want them to not buy it because it's in the sample. So this is probably me being really sneaky, but hey, I am a sneaky, I'm a Slytherin, so I get to do that. And then my second note would be 
to, in, in addition to the emotionality, would be um, speed it up. I did think the scene was a bit drawn out. I don't think we needed five pages of this. Perhaps Lori could be summoned backstage to fix the issue as opposed to being there from the start. Like maybe someone goes, we need Lori. So she walks in and then, you know, she she fixes it quicker, I think. Not not because it. when I say that it felt longer than it had to, I don't mean to say that the pace was dragging and I was bored because I wasn't, I was interested. But I do think you could speed it up and or add emotionality. Thanks, Cece. I'm a major potty mouth. Anyone who's listened to me on this podcast knows that. And anyone who's read either of my two books knows that as well. But the way I apply that kind of thing is very much to a specific character. So if you're just dropping F-bombs all over the place from every character's perspective, then obviously that doesn't work. But if you have one character who has, you know, a lot of rage, who has perhaps not the best filter, Certainly, I've been told that, that I say things too spontaneously before thinking about them. So if you have a character that it feels really authentic to, and they don't really have this internal filter, or they don't really care how people perceive them, and it feels truly authentic to the character, then, you know, then that's something to to fight for. And I always do for my potty mouth characters. But yeah, I do. Um, I have gotten strongly worded emails and uh, things in the middle of the night from people who weren't so happy with my potty mouthedness, Carly. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, this is a book club targeted book. And so you would be essentially alienating some very potential fans just based on the fact of the swearing. And people and authors do get lit up on Goodreads for swearing. So, you know, Goodreads is good. It's bad. You know, you don't you don't have to feel strongly one way or the other, but it does also influence readers. So as you know, we're, we're on a podcast called The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. We are all pro swearing, but you will be alienating a certain group. Yeah. So definitely something to keep in mind and you get to decide if that's something you're going to fight for or not when, when the time comes with your agent and your editor down the line as well. All right, Cece, let's hear the last query letter. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia, thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to share my work with two amazing literary agents. I came across your podcast a few months ago and have been devouring the older episodes, absorbing the advice of writers, editors, and agents alike. I recently attended the Ripped from the Headline events hosted by Carly and her earlier How to Write a First Draft in a Month seminar. I've also very much enjoyed Cecilia and Carly's presence on Clubhouse. From these events, I've taken away many great tips and advice for my own writing. I'm sharing with you today the first five pages of my 80,000 word count, yet unnamed, memoir. In the blink of an eye, Allison's world is turned upside down when she hears the words, it's what we thought, it's cancer. Now, instead of advancing her career in communications and pursuing marathon personal bests, she is left fighting for her life, her leg, and her relationship. Allison's present and past collide as she struggles to manage the mounting tension between her partner and her parents, while also navigating a whole new world of surgeries, scans, chemotherapy, and doctors. When it becomes clear to her and her specialists that she will never regain functionality of her right leg muscles, Allison must come to terms with being disabled and grapples with the impact to her self-identity, her self-worth, and her future. Unnamed Memoir is a poignant story of love, self-love, and survival. This book will appeal to fans of memoirs such as Educated by Tara Westover and Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness by Susanna Cahelen, and When Breath Becomes Air 
by Paul Kalanithi. I currently work in healthcare research, specializing in advancing accessibility standards and related public policy. While I have always loved reading and writing for pleasure, I wrote this memoir as an exercise of healing, and my hope is that readers will find some personal value in the words. Thank you again for this wonderful opportunity and for taking your time reading my work. Kind regards, Allison. Wonderful, Cece. So what did you think of that? Whenever I'm critiquing memoirs, I always want to start by saying thank you, extra thank you for sharing this because it's that much more personal. In terms of constructive feedback that I could offer this this writer, one, I do think you should pick a title. I know it seems like a very silly thing, but it just... It takes me away not having a title. We're used to titles. And I do think that it's it's not permanent, right? Like whatever title you pick. So just pick one. I think it says a lot about how you frame the story, how you see the story. And I, I would encourage you to do that. Assuming this gets published, assuming you get an agent, assuming you get an editor, you won't have to stick to the title you, you choose. I also would say, I don't know how old Allison is when this happens. And I think that matters. So I would add her um, her age to the second paragraph. I would commend the, the writer also for writing the hook part. That's the second paragraph in the third person. It works really well for memoirs to do that in the third person, even though you could use I, I, I. But but when you use the third person, you're showing the agent that you can think of yourself as a protagonist, which is exactly what you have to do in a memoir. Even though it is your story, it is not your diary. It is a story. And so you are supposed to think of yourself as a main character and you're supposed to think of your life's journey as a narrative arc that will unfold like a story. Another thing I would say is memoirs sell when there's a hook. I don't see a hook here based on the query letter. I'm not saying there isn't a hook. I'm just saying I can't see one. It's easy to conflate a massive thing that happened to you. And there was a massive thing that happened to this person with a central conflict. And these are not the same. If your life is upended by a massive, massive occurrence, um, whether that's as a child, your parents got divorced in a really bad divorce, or as an adult, you, you became disabled. While these are important, relevant occurrences, they do not a hook make. So I would try to flesh that out. It's a difficult thing to do in a memoir. It's extra work, but it's essential. And then for the very last paragraph, I would say, I love the sentiment that you wrote this as an exercise in healing, but I wouldn't write that. Here's why. A lot of people do that. A lot of people write memoirs because they're healing. And actually a lot of people write fiction because they're healing. And that is essential. But part of the struggle with memoirs is why do I care about your story? This is something that editors ask me. Why do I care about the stranger's story? She's not a celebrity. So the answer can't be because the author cares. Keep that information in your in your vault to share it in interviews and stuff, but show the reader why they are going to want to read this. Um, tell your agent why they what why readers, book club readers and other readers are going to want to be invested in this story, as opposed to sharing why you wrote it. Specifically for memoirs, I think that's very important. Carly, what did you think? I also had the age note in my comments. I thought that was really important, not for the reason of ageism, but I think it matters you know, to the reader of, you know, how old they are. So, so I do think that that's quite important. I think Cece was just on fire there. I think she was, that was a brilliant, brilliant analysis. The only thing I wanted to add to that was the thing about memoirs that can be tricky is there has to be a beginning, a middle and an end. And I'm not clear on kind of what the 
end of this story is. Again, not that you have to give away the ending, but then we have, then I want to go over to the comps here. So the comps we have educated, brain on fire, and when breath becomes air. I don't know from this why educated is a comp. Again, it's a brilliant, brilliant memoir, best-selling memoir. Also, I've talked about before the role of comps and how when the comp is bigger than the world itself, you know, that was just a ubiquitous title that was a bestseller around the world. So I feel like that's a tough comp. It's a really great book. I do feel like that's a tough comp and I didn't really feel like that was the best comp here. And then we get to the comp of When Breath Becomes Air, which is about, it's very literary. It's about mortality. And, you know, I believe this is the memoir where the man passes away, right? And then the wife writes the conclusion. So that's, it. it's again, brilliant, brilliant. I bawled my eyes out reading that book. Oh my God, brilliant, brilliant book. And so that comp I'm thinking about, okay, is this, what is, what, how is that connected to this? Very letter. Is it because it's literary? Is it because we're dancing with mortality? Ultimately, this is very interesting. I I grieve so much, you know, for this author and, and the experience that they had. And and you know, this this sounds like a very, very tough time. And and you've clearly been able to pull something beautiful out of it. And I think you have a lot here. I think there's a memoir here. I'm just kind of asking these pointed questions to kind of get at, you know, whether this is right for, you know, publication at this time. My last note was just this. Uh, where do you live? I didn't really get a sense of where this author lives. So I would just, you know, again, throw in a you know, general city, province, state, region of the world. Just give us a little bit of something, something there. That always helps me. And oh, one thing I didn't address was the opening paragraph, which was full of flattery, but in a very good way. I thought they balanced the entry point into, you know, why they're coming to us. And, you know, it wasn't overdone. I, I thought that was a very nice um, opening paragraph. So all in all, this has a lot of really, really great stuff in here. So thank you so much, Allison. This was really well done. Thank you, Colleen. Cece, what did you think of the actual pages? Um, I also have quite a few notes for for her and, and the pages. So for the listener, we get two scenes. We get a prologue and then we get chapter one. The prologue is a scene where the protagonist is about to race. She's in that beginning part of the race where she's like stretching and she looks around and there are some people who are also stretching and shedding their extra layers. And some people are handing sweaters off to friends or family. In her case, um, when it comes time for her to shed her sweater, she throws it on the grass. And, you know, she talks about how she wasn't feeling great, but, you know, she wasn't too concerned about it, essentially. And it's very well written. I do want to emphasize that. But there's no tension. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then the second scene, chapter one, um, she's waking up from surgery, dazed and groggy. And we see Sam, who's her partner. We, you know, we see what's happening in terms of what's unfolding. The nurses check on her, bring her fresh ice chips and juice and saltine crackers. Then there's a line break, different date. The writer was very careful about inserting the date at the beginning of each of these scenes. And she's in her condo in the 18th floor of her condo on the West End of Toronto. And she's essentially grappling with what happened to her. And we listen to how she met Sam, her partner. The reason why I went through the beginning of, of each of these scenes is, is A, so the listener can know what we're talking about, but also because my note has is a very big picture note. In terms of the prologue, like I said, very well written, no tension. In terms of the opening scene in the hospital, and I feel so bad saying this, but no tension, no conflict. It's it's heartbreaking, but there's no tension or conflict or imbalance. And I play this game with my clients who are writing memoirs when they're struggling with a scene and they call me and we do our whiteboard brainstorming where I say, okay, so what would we do if this were fiction? 
because I think that's a great game to play with a memoir. A successful memoir reads like a novel, and a novel has a story arc with a central conflict and escalating tension and imbalance and, and all these compelling, juicy things. And again, I always feel weird talking about someone's life as though it were fiction, but if you want to sell your memoir, that's what you have to do. So I'm going to play this game here. If this were fiction, what would I do? So for the prologue, I'd like to see a race where she wins despite odds that indicate that she wasn't going to win. Maybe she, there's a rivalry. That would actually be ideal. There's a rival person there, like a runner who sometimes beats her, sometimes doesn't. And maybe she tricks him into thinking she's injured mid-race, but then she's not injured. She was just tricking him, piggybacked in, on his um, arrogance, and she won. I would love that, especially because A, it would paint a picture of her full of life before this tragic thing happened. And also because it would show her her personality, like her being mischievous. For the opening scene of the hospital, there's a part where she mentions Sam and she just sort of mentions that Sam is there. What I would say is to make it a story, she would have to substitute the unfolding of events, the play-by-play. -play. Maybe we could see her waking up confused. We don't know that she's actually in a hospital. Maybe we have no idea. We're tense. Maybe she is just woke up from a hangover. Maybe she is in a hospital. We don't know. And then little by little, the story unfolds in a manipulative way to, to comment on Bianca's comment of, I think last week's episode where she said, you know, we are manipulators, writers, and she's right. So I would like to, maybe she could say, where is Sam? Like in her head. And perhaps the nurse is checking in her, bringing ice chips, but she, all she wants is Sam. And the reader's going, wait, who is Sam? Is Sam a woman? Is Sam a man? A, a non-binary person? We don't know. And when the doctor saw her crying, maybe the doctor would assume that she was crying because of the pain. But because we're in her head, we know that it's not the pain only. She's crying because where is Sam? And we could feel really tense. Like, who the heck is Sam? Why isn't he here? The curiosity is essential, right? Like, and, and please note that these are just examples. So when I play the what would I do if this were fiction game, I'm not suggesting that you make it up. You can't do that. I'm showing you how we would frame a fiction story. Not so you'll use the specific plot points, but so you'll use the unfolding of the tension and the unfolding of the conflict in a way that keeps us curious. Right now, everything's happening too quickly. It's it's like the author has taken bullet points and, and written, written it beautifully. And, and there is a scene. I can tell where we are. She has done that. But it's not unfolding in a way that's seductive. What I always say is storytelling is seduction. It's about keeping us satisfied while also keeping us wanting more. And curiosity is the number one emotion you want your reader to be feeling at the end of your first pages. More than anything, they're supposed to be curious about what's going to happen. And I say this with all the love, I am not curious. I know exactly what's happening. I also want to say, I think this is normal. When you're writing a memoir, it's, it's normal that you get all the facts out and then you weave in things, right? Like to, to mention what Bianca said before in that previous query, it's all about aligning. It's all puzzle pieces. So I think you can do it. Carly, what have you got to add to that? I think this is a really fun example of Titi and I having different opinions. And I also think this is a fun example of how difficult it is to write memoir. Everybody believes they have a story in them. And I believe everybody does. But being a storyteller is very different than being a human being, right? And so figuring out how to craft our big life moments into a story, like Cece said, that's for other people, right? Like a memoir, if you want to publish commercially, you know, in a traditional setting, being sold in bookstores, it's essentially for other people, right? And it's a vulnerable thing because you are the protagonist. So I, I just want to emphasize how incredibly difficult it is to write memoir. 
and how vulnerable it is and, and how thankful I am to see this material because I think that there's something happening here, right? This is a, this is a big thing. And, and I do think that, um, you know, there, there's something that the general readership can't take from this. I really liked the prologue. I wrote, this is an example of a prologue I really like. And I'm normally the anti-prologue lady. So I I really liked it. I did feel like we were moving fast, but, you know, because we find out on essentially page two or three that that she has cancer. And so that made me think that if that, if obviously the reveal of cancer isn't the hook, then there's a big hook coming. You know, and there could be a masterful story happening here. So I find memoir very hard to critique on a line level until I've seen the whole thing, because I need the sense of the life. Like I need to know what are the puzzle pieces we have to move around. You know, what is the arc of the characters and the romance and the love that we have between you know the character, the main character, and Sam? You know, there's a love story here. You know, there's a story about our relationship to our bodies. You know, what we expect our bodies to do for us and perform for us, and what happens when they let us down. You know, there's so much happening here that's incredibly interesting but this to me is an example of something that I think is great and has potential but seems like we're seeing it too early again fine this is you know a podcast you know we're critiquing that's what it's for I do feel like we're seeing this probably too early from an agent's point of view but you know there's a there's a lot here so I would say figure out what exactly the hook is you know what the beginning the middle and the end is and and just kind of move these puzzle pieces around and figure out how to weave it into a narrative that has tension and has a plot and as character arc. This would be something that I, again, would would totally normally request, but I actually represent something kind of in this space. So so this would be an example of something that I'm working on that's a bit too close to to a client project. So so all in all, I, um, yeah, I like that CC and I had different opinions of this one, but I definitely want to empathize with the creator on this because memoir is tough, man. So, so tough. Just a reminder of a few things that we've got coming up. I have two courses coming up. The first is, so you want to write a novel? Maybe you've always wanted to write a novel, but just don't know where to begin. Or you had a really great idea that you started on, but it fizzled out. Or you finished your novel, but you weren't able to sell it. And now you need to go back to basics. Or maybe you're not sure if you headed in the right direction and would like some feedback on your work in progress. I'm starting an eight-week virtual course on the 6th of May. second course is writing a kick-ass first chapter. Are you struggling to nail that opening chapter? Not sure where to begin or what should be included and what should be left out? I have a two-hour webinar coming up on the 12th of May from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I cover everything you need to know about writing an attention-grabbing first chapter that will immediately hook your reader. Please go to my website at biancamaray.com for more details. Cece also has a webinar coming up on the 20th of May at 8pm Eastern Time called From Memories to Memoir, Turning Your Life's Journey into a Book. If you'd like to sign up for that, please go to her Instagram page and you'll find the link in her bio. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. 
They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's gonna be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're gonna have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you wanna learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Joining us today as our guest is Katie Wall of Craft Better Books. Katie has over a decade of experience helping writers in a variety of capacities as a coach, developmental editor, copy editor, and proofreader, and in a variety of genres. She's worked with realistic fiction, historical fiction, religious nonfiction, textbooks, PhD dissertations, and the list goes on. Her heart, though, is with speculative fiction. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the show. It's so lovely to get to chat 
to you today. Let's talk book coach stuff because you are a book coach. And this is a question I get a lot from students, from writers who perhaps have already written a manuscript, but haven't gotten the kind of response to it that they would have liked in terms of sending it out to get representation. I also have a ton of my students reach out and say they really need somebody to work with along the way, because while they take a creative writing course, they have deadlines and they have days at which they have to submit assignments for. And that helps them in terms of the momentum, in terms of creating. But then when they stop writing a class, all of that falls away. So I feel like you are going to have all the answers to these questions for us. So why don't you take us through what a book coach is and why writers might consider hiring one? Sure. So a book coach can function as a cheerleader, as a mentor, and as a guide to writers. So that can look like helping a writer just starting out with an idea to really flesh out what is the point of the story? What kind of change might the protagonist undergo from the beginning to the end? And how does that tie in with the plot arc? So as a book coach at that stage, I can be a cheerleader to say, yes, like this idea is great. Let's run with it. And then also bring up questions of, you know, well, what about this aspect? Or what about this? Or, oh, well, I hear you saying this. How does that match this other thing you said? Just to provide that that outside perspective that can really bring depth to a story. And in terms of, I, I kind of laughed a little bit when you brought up the external structure and the deadlines and things like that, because I absolutely provide that as a book coach, especially with ongoing coaching packages, as opposed to like one-time coaching packages. There's kind of two ways that book coaching can work depending on what the objective is. But for the ongoing coaching, I typically do, you know, two deadlines a month. So I'm working with the writer either as they're drafting their story or as they're revising. So they submit a certain number of pages at each deadline, which I then review and give feedback on. And then we can have a coaching call to talk through that and to talk through the plan for moving forward each time. And I think, I believe that I said that that can be for both drafting and for revising. So depending on where the writer's at. And then I also help writers who are either preparing to query for traditional publishing or who are, who have been querying and are getting rejections and they're not sure why, or if they should keep querying or what that might look like. And so I can help them put their query materials together. So that's the the synopsis and that's the query letter. And then also the agent research, because finding the right agents to send your query materials to is really key. And then for people who are getting rejections, we can take a look at, okay, well, what kind of rejections are you getting? Are you getting them without having been asked for a sample yet? Or are you getting them after the agent has read your full manuscript? And we can look at, okay, what does that information tell us? And how can we change either your query materials or how can we look at and identify problems in the manuscript potentially and adjust those so that there's a better chance uh, querying successfully moving forward. So that's the broad overview there. <laughs> and and you brought up a really good point there because I find that when uh, writers are not even getting requests for, you know, the first five or 10 chapters or the full manuscript, it's because their query letter just isn't getting them through the door. You know, that is what the query letter is for. It's a foot in the door so that, you know, agents actually want to see their writing. Um, and as we're learning on the Books with Hook segment, somebody can be a really incredible fiction writer, but really 
really not very good at pitching themselves or pitching their work. Whereas if agents are asking for the manuscript, but perhaps are turning it down after they've read the work, then there might be issues on a line level, or perhaps they're just starting their story at the wrong place, which is something we've also seen a lot of at uh, with Books and Hooks. Are there other issues that you found cropping up at those particular stages? Yeah, sometimes uh, it can be a mismatch between maybe what genre or age group that the manuscript in question is versus what the agents are actually looking for and taking. So that can be a disconnect uh, that can really hurt writers because they'll say, oh, well, I sent my manuscript to 50 agents. And I'm like, well, but wait, (laughs) you know, were they the right agents for your book? And I would also say, and this isn't necessarily an issue uh, that would cause more rejections, but often I think writers make the mistake of sending their materials out to too many agents at a time. And they really rob themselves of the opportunity of learning from the rejections. It's much better to send out five or seven queries and just wait and be patient and get back some feedback, whether that's requests and then, you know, they may get an offer that would be fabulous. Or maybe they're getting some rejections and then they can adjust and move forward at a much earlier place and then send out rather than having, you know, 50 rejections and then they've burned all those bridges and can't resubmit to those agents. So that's a that's a big piece of advice, I guess, that I would pass on in regards to querying is just be patient and and try and go about this intentionally instead of just charging forward, even though it's exciting to get to that point in the process. How often do agents come back with personalized feedback that they can actually use? Or is it a case of not even getting uh, personalized feedback in terms of the rejection, but it's a case of going, okay, so you sent to these seven agents, but none of them asked for a full manuscript, meaning we have to go back to the drawing board in terms of your query letter. Right. So I don't have a statistic off the top of my head, but I would say that I think a lot of it comes down to at what point is the rejection coming through? So are they sending the rejection before asking for a sample or before a partial or before a full? And that tells us things because if if they haven't seen the manuscript at all, that tells us there's a problem in the query materials. And so then it's a question of looking at those materials. Is there ways that we can tweak them? Uh, and then also reevaluating, okay, are, are we matching you with the right kind of agent or do we need to look at that again? And if the rejections are coming instead after seeing a sample, then we can say, okay, well, if they've seen 10 pages and they're rejecting you know, multiple agents, not just one agent, but multiple agents, then all right, so something is wrong at the beginning of the book. Let's work on that. But if we're getting rejections after an agent is looking at the full manuscript, you know, they've seen a partial and they requested the full then, and then they're rejecting. Often agents will give more personal feedback at that point because they've already invested at the time in reading the whole manuscript. So in some ways it's easier because then we can implement that feedback that we're getting from those agents. But we can also say, okay, well, maybe something's not quite wrapping up right at the end. Or, you know, maybe if we were trying to do this theme, like let's let's evaluate, you know, did that theme really come through? Or are there loose ends somewhere? Or let's evaluate the pacing in the middle. So some of those other pieces, if there's not consistent feedback from multiple agents after reading a full, then we can step back and look at the bigger picture and see if if we can find any stumbling, stumbling blocks for the agents. Or it may just be that these particular agents weren't quite the right one and we can just keep pushing. Because if you are getting requests for full manuscripts, that is actually a really good sign, <laughs> even if you are still getting 
getting rejections. So yeah, absolutely. That's always a wonderful sign. And the big thing is, I feel like writers need to be open to whatever your feedback may be, even if sometimes it isn't what they were hoping for. So for example, you know, with my first novel, the first draft of my first novel spanned four decades. And then when we were getting rejections from editors, not from agents at that point, but from editors, I was being told we liked the character, we liked the story, but you have been way too ambitious in terms of time frame. So instead of having a novel that spans four decades, crystallize it into just one period of time. And of course, this is not what I wanted to hear at that point when I have finished an entire novel and now have to take out 60,000 words of it, which is three quarters of the novel and start again so that the novel spans a year and three months. And while that wasn't what I wanted to hear, it's what I absolutely had to do. So sometimes it means listening to feedback that is going to make us cry and that's going to make us pour a really big wine and sob hysterically into it. But, you know, if that's the feedback that's going to uh, ensure that the story is the kind of story that somebody wants to publish, then how wonderful to be able to get that feedback and to know what's wrong. Because I think the most frustrating part with writing any book is that it doesn't work for whatever reason and you just don't know how to fix it. Yes, absolutely. And this is part of why I even became a book coach because I want to be able to help people figure out what isn't working in their stories and help them also devise a plan to move forward and revise and be confident in that direction that they take. Because sometimes even if a writer is getting feedback, it can be very overwhelming and they don't know how to move forward. So that's another piece of what I do is, okay, let's make a step-by-step plan. This is the most pressing thing. Then this can come after that. Then this can come after that. Because you don't want to address a more superficial problem before you address a larger issue. Because chances are revising that larger issue will then undo a lot of the other work that you just did revising the smaller issue. So that can be a really important step in the process is just figuring out, okay, which issues are the biggest issues here and how, what are the steps to address that? And then I can go ahead and repolish things. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And something that I'm enjoying doing now, and it was never my process before, my process always used to be that I wrote, you know, the entire novel and then showed it to my agent for feedback. And what I'm doing with my latest novel is as I'm drafting each chapter, they go off to my agent to have a look at and to send back so that I can be self-correcting along the way. Because if you write something all at once, you don't quite realize where you've gone wrong and you'll keep writing yourself down that dead end. And suddenly many, many chapters down the line, you realize, oh shit, I've got to come back and fix this, which can be so frustrating. Whereas I imagine somebody who's working with you on a chapter by chapter basis, you know, you are going to be pointing out in every chapter, hold on, there isn't enough conflict here. Hold on, there's a problem with voice here. Hold on, there's some issue in terms of characterization. Or you are at page 60 and you don't yet have a inciting incident or a key event, which I think makes it so much easier to manage the whole process along the way, which means that your first draft at the end is going to be so much tighter and more polished than it would be without working with a book coach. What What do you say? Oh, absolutely. And I also really encourage my clients to work through my, I call it the firm up your novel workbook. And this is where we talk a lot about, you know, what is the point that you are trying to make with this story? What is the guiding principle? What is the protagonist arc of change? And how does that tie into the plot arc? Because if you have those pieces, that foundation, and you can sketch out some kind of outline, and I'm not trying to convince everybody 
to be, you know, obsessive plotters where you have every detail. Like that's not, I don't have that agenda. However, I do think it's very important to have those core aspects of the story figured out because it gives you this foundation where when you are drafting each chapter, you can say, okay, how is this chapter tying back to that story point? How is the character changing just in this scene or just in this chapter? And how does that link in to this chain of events to get from where the character is at the beginning to the end? And so we usually start there. We start at this kind of foundational part. And then I do give that feedback along the way, whether it's chapter by chapter or a couple of chapters at a time, depends on what the contracts we work out um, to be is. But I do think that 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 feedback as we go is invaluable. And it really does, as you said, result in a much tighter manuscript at the end uh, and shaves off a lot of time and pain in the revision process. Yeah, yeah. The crying into your wine phase will be shortened greatly. Katie, in terms of uh, fees, because this is always important for writers who are working on their manuscript, who are figuring out if they can afford the help, how much help they can afford, etc. Can you give us an indication? I know that it completely differs project by project, depending on what it is specifically that the uh, client wants or what they need from you. But if you could give us a rough estimate of, of how you calculate those fees. Sure. So for my ongoing support packages, I do two deadlines a month. And those basically what it works out to is 40 pages a month is what I'm I'm reviewing and giving feedback on, um, which includes comments on in the document pages themselves, and then also a feedback letter every deadline, which the feedback letter breaks down those revision priorities. And so it's not just saying, okay, I noticed all of these things. It's saying, okay, I noticed these things and here's how I think you could approach it. And here's some tools to help you with that. And they all, it also includes coaching calls, which would be over phone or video conferencing to discuss that feedback, to talk through any blocks that the writer is experiencing, that kind of thing. And so and each time I'm pricing, I will take in mind uh, or keep in mind that uh, how many deadlines, how many pages, how much coaching time is involved. And I usually try and keep this, you know, we'll do like three months together at a time in a package because otherwise that, you know, if we do it by one month, that's only two deadlines. That's not really long enough for a writer to see, you know, how much improvement they could make with coaching. So I try and, and lump it together there. And I do also, because I, I understand how invaluable this is. And also I understand that writers don't necessarily have, you know, tons of cash to throw at coaching and stuff. So I do also offer, you know, payment plans on a an as need basis, uh, because I do want to support writers who may not otherwise receive support or have, you know, own voices, stories, things like that, because I want to, to advance their voices in the way that I can. So my current rate is 400 a month, which is the two deadlines of 20 pages each, and then one 45 minute coaching call. And I think I have looked at, I mean, I have looked at other book coaches and their rates, and there is a little bit of a spectrum. And so you can, you know, shop around a little bit, find somebody that that matches your budget. And then also, if you find a coach that you really want to work with, but you're like, the standard package is out of my budget, contact them anyway and ask them if they'll put together a custom package. I'm happy to do that with writers. But the $400 a month is my standard for ongoing coaching support at this time. Yeah. And that's incredibly reasonable because I know when I am teaching and I am marking assignments, 
I'll get a five page, just a five page assignment, and I'll spend over an hour marking that one assignment. So for you, for 40 pages, you know, that's a lot of hours spent on that particular draft, working through it. And I'm sure you read it more than once, etc. And you really tear it apart. I'll spend an hour on five pages going over it once. So yeah, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of work. To me, that's an incredibly reasonable rate. And the fact that you allow authors to, you know, pay you on a monthly rate over a three-month period, I think makes it that much more accessible as well. So that's that's amazing. In terms of additional services that you offer, you and I have discussed it and you said that there's also um, an evaluation that you do in terms of opening pages. And this is so important because these are the pages that are going to attract uh, an agent's attention. This is what's going to make them want to read more. So if those opening pages aren't really, really polished, that's problematic. So could you tell us a bit more about that service as well? Absolutely. So I call it the first pages evaluation. And basically, I take either the first three chapters or the first 30 pages of a manuscript, and I do a super close reading, I evaluate for fundamental issues and put together a comprehensive editorial letter summarizing my findings and laying out next steps for revision. Uh, And this can be depending on the state of the opening, you know, it may be focusing much more on the fundamentals of, you know, I don't think you started in quite the right place, or I'm not seeing, you know, enough conflict from the beginning, or, you know, we're getting info dumps in the first couple of pages, that kind of a thing. Or it may be much more like, you know, you used the word abode 20 times in 30 pages, like we need to work on some of your vocabulary use, things like that. So I also include a 30 minute coaching call to review the feedback, because I really want to make sure that writers get the most uh, use out of this package as they can. And I also try and extrapolate my feedback. So I say, you know, I've seen this pattern in these pages, you know, make sure when I'm talking about the next steps for, for revision, you know, make sure you go through the rest of the manuscript and look for this or make sure that this, you know, theme gets really emphasized and tied up by the end. And then if, if writers want, they can book me for the full manuscript evaluation after that, if they feel like they need some additional support identifying those issues. But this first pages evaluation is a really affordable option for writers who want this extra feedback and want to have the beginning evaluated, but aren't able to uh, do a full manuscript evaluation at this time. And what would that package be for in terms of cost? Sure. So at this point, it is $150. That is such a bargain, huge bargain, because that's, like I said, an hour for five pages, and that's a lot of time you're going to be spending there. So if I was getting ready to be querying, etc., this is definitely something that I would be signing up for without a doubt. Uh, right. So Katie, thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. Okay, Katie, if someone would like to work with you, what's the best way that they can reach out to you? Sure. Our website is www.craftbetterbooks.com. There's a contact me page there. It's very quick and easy to fill out. And then I will contact you uh, for more information to get you set up in our system. You can also sign up for a free 30 minute consultation, which you can do from our homepage. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can, our handle on Instagram is at craft better books. And that is also the name of our Facebook page. So we're pretty easy to find. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. 
since the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. 
they will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format, so if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.